Hello, and welcome to episode 113 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and I'm joined today by Grace Lichtenstein, the author of the 1974 book, A Long Way Baby, Behind the Scenes in Women's Tennis. Her book is an absolutely vital insight into the beginnings of the WTA Tour, as well as the famous Battle of the Sexes match between Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King. The book is out of print, but it's pretty easy to track down, either online or as a used hard copy, which I very strongly recommend that you do. So I'm thrilled to be able to talk with Grace. Um, Welcome to longtime New York Times reporter and author of several books, in addition to this one, Grace Lichtenstein. When you started this project, you it sounds like you weren't really uh, involved with tennis. You weren't specifically a tennis reporter. And yet here you are with this deal to write a book about an entire women's tennis season. So how did that come about that you ended up with that project in your hands? Uh, well, I was a reporter for the Times, uh, for the New York Times at the time. And a publisher uh, approached me knowing that I like to watch tennis and and I played a little tennis of my own, you know, just recreational tennis. And nobody had written about women's tennis before, or for that matter, much about men's tennis. Uh, so I said yes. And I got in touch with Neil Amder, who was the Times tennis reporter, and followed him to a tournament and uh, got my feet wet and wrote a magazine piece for the New York Times magazine about um that was called perfume in the locker room and uh that was the start of my reporting for the book uh from there i went to i went to one tournament that was for perfume in the locker room and then i think my next tournament and i interviewed some of the um uh, some of the players there for my next tournament. I think then I went to Wimbledon. I didn't know what I was doing, but I went anyhow. And I uh, uh, that was the year that Billie Jean played uh, Chris Everett uh, in the finals. And I managed to go to the finals. And uh, Billie Jean also won the the doubles and the mix that year. And I uh, we spent some time afterwards in an interview that was facilitated by her hairdresser, uh, who, not that I knew it at the time, but it, it was also her lover. Um, so that's how I got started. It, like you said, there weren't a lot of books, like, there were no books, as far as I know, like this about women's tennis at the time. And I'm uh, not sure there were any sort of season chronicles, even about men's tennis before this. And I'm it, not sure there were either. Either, but I didn't have f- full time to write about the book and uh, to write about women's tennis. And following on on and off, following a t- the season seemed to be the most likely uh, way to do it. And of course, I had absolutely no idea that Bobby Riggs would challenge anybody that year and absolutely make my book. Yeah, that's an, a, such an amazing coincidence. And I, and I wonder, uh, that worked out so nicely as a frame for the book that you were able to start and end talking about the, the battle of the sexes. Um, did you have an idea, but before that fell in your lap, did you have an idea of how, what sort of the framing device would be for the book or what would be tying it all together? All I knew was that I, I'd follow a season of the tour. I had no idea for a frame until... Well, first, Margaret uh, lost to Bobby Riggs. And then once Billie Jean started the ball rolling with Bobby Riggs, then 
clearly uh, I had a frame and I was so lucky. I mean, I was just, it was just pure luck. Yeah, it's it's it, it's amazing that you were able to to put that in with the rest of the book. Since everything else in the book was, I mean, it's such such a such an important moment in women's tennis, but um, but it doesn't stand out like that single match does. Are there uh, were there books or or authors that that you used as as references at the time? Because I think some people were maybe writing. There were had been baseball books about individual seasons before that time. I mean, was there any anything in particular that you looked at as? a model for how you might do this? I don't, I don't think so, but frankly, I, <laughs> it was a long time ago. I don't remember. <laughs> what? You don't remember every single thought you had in, in 1972. I'm disappointed. <laughs> I I'm talked about this with, with Carl in my, my podcast with him. And I, I remain baffled by this, that these two battle of the sexes matches in 1973, the results were so different. And I mean, Margaret court was blasted off the court. Billie Jean King, crushed Bobby Riggs and it's in a women's match they were fairly equal so it seems that seems very extreme to me and I I still sort of am am puzzled figuring it out you talk in your book about how Margaret Court had a reputation as a choker and and that could have been part of it but I mean do you have any other explanations to offer why why the results were so different in those two matches the only other explanation I have is that Billie Jean uh, is that Margaret M- Margaret didn't take it seriously. Okay, and so she uh, it it didn't bother her that much that she choked. <laughs> on the one hand, she didn't take it seriously. On the other hand, she took it seriously enough that she choked. <laughs> yeah, that that is a bit of a paradox. Yeah. Uh, one thing I loved in your description of of Billie Jean from that interview after Wimbledon you talked about is. You said there were these moments where she seemed like an insane eleven-year-old, um, and and she certainly had, I mean, tons of enthusiasm that just leaps off the page. And clearly, she's evolved as a person, and her public persona is very different these days. But do you still see any signs of that side of Billie Jean King in in her public persona these days? Uh, you know, I don't really follow her, but um, I I. Uh... I mean, she's become the grand old lady of tennis and of the women's movement too. And so I don't, I don't know how how much of an eleven year old is left in her, uh, but she's evolved into something much more interesting. Now, part part of what what prompted me to to start digging into this era was since I was writing about Rosie Casals recently, and, and one of the defining things about Rosie Casals' career was her matchup with Billie Jean King, and this is. This is an, an, an ongoing debate, both at the time and a little bit even now, that um, she would say she was really psyched out by Billie Jean King. Billie Jean King said that, I, th- I think she wrote in her book, that she just thought she was better, <laughs> that Rosie didn't work hard enough off the court. And it wasn't about psychology. It was just that, that Billie Jean was a better player. Um, you were around the two of them. Did, did you have a sense of, was there a, 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 just a psychological block for Rosie Casals? Uh, maybe. Uh, they were, they were good buddies and they were doubles partners. They knew one another's game. They were both short and Billie Jean was just simply the better player. Her strokes were better. Her psychology was better on the court. She wanted to win more. You wrote some great passages about how, how fans connected with, with Rosie. It seemed like they, they cheered for her more more vehemently than other players. They really connected with her energy on the court. And 
are there other players that came along later or I mean, even other players at the time, but is there anyone who reminds you of that way that, that Rosie really connected with the fans? Interesting. You should ask because the uh, uh, last night or the night before I was watching Layla Fernandez win a tournament in Mexico and as one of the shortest players on tour and one of the most lively, to some degree, Layla Fernandez reminds me of uh, Rosie, although, you know, they're different people and it's a different era, different uh, kinds of rackets. Um, uh, uh, clearly, Fernandez has much more powerful strokes, but in her height, and her enthusiasm, I think Fernandez reminds, and, and her scrambling, uh, she reminds me a little of Rosie. Oh, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't have made that connection, but I, I definitely see what you're, what you're getting at. And it's also interesting that, that you, you just watched that match in Mexico, because I've noticed that, that Mexican fans are really enthusiastic. And uh-huh. they had the women's tour finals in Guadalajara last fall. And, and I wonder, do you think that the maybe part of part of what what you saw there is is from the the nature of the fans themselves because so it's at the especially at the grand slams sometimes it feels like the crowd has gotten so so corporate dominated it, it this isn't true at the u.s open but maybe at, at, at some other tournaments it's just um it's not as enthusiastic of a crowd do you think that's that's true that the the nature of the crowds at at for women's tennis has changed in 50 years Gosh, I don't know. Um, It's hard to tell. Certainly the size of the crowd for women's tennis and the appreciation, especially since since I forget what year Wimbledon finally came up or U.S. Open finally came up with equal prize money. Uh, Crowds are enthusiastic because money begets enthusiasm, I think. So back on when when you were traveling with the Virginia Slims tour, it, it sounds like at some events there was a pretty sizable press contingent there, and then other other times you were basically alone with the players. What were the? I mean, how, how well was was that covered? I mean, was it mostly local media at the, the stops you were at outside of New York? Or, I mean, how how well was the women's tour covered that year? It was hardly covered. I mean, the the Times and the um... And the Daily News and the Boston Globe, because of Bud Collins, they covered women's tennis. But for the most part, there wasn't um, there wasn't that much coverage. There wasn't tennis wasn't anywhere near as popular as it is today. I don't think. And I think the battle of the sexes had something to do with that. I think that grew the audience for tennis in general. Certainly, it seems like even just the promotion for Battle of the Sexes, because it was such a such a huge cultural event and I mean, reading about the ticket prices is there's this little little um controversy now about how expensive the tickets are for labor cup in london this year and i think uh-huh. if you adjust for inflation those hundred dollar tickets at the astrodome are pretty much the same thing it's just uh-huh. wild to imagine people shelling out like that so once once your book came out how did did you get any reactions from the players how they received this behind the scenes look at their tour uh, well, I think they were a little surprised at how intimate it was because, you know, I just, I was around them for enough time that they let their guard down. And also there wasn't the scrum of 
agents and coaches and physios and you know uh the 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 team that is now around players that didn't exist 50 years ago um so there was there was certainly that difference did your book have much of an audience in among the public? I mean, I, I don't have any sense of how, how well it sold or how popular well, it was. It sold okay, and it did well in paperback. And the paperback had an added front chapter about the rise of Chris Everett, among other things. I'm not sure what impact the book had. Certainly that match had a huge impact, though. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, and just judging from the books that were written later on, I mean, there have been a number of books in the at least a couple of decades after that just followed a tour for a season. And, and sure. I, I don't know how much they were influenced by yours or whether that's just a, a sort of natural format for a book. But um, you did lead the way in that regard. Well, I think it is a natural format, actually, just like people who cover baseball cover a season, you know, if they want to write a book or they, they look back on a season. But you asked about the, how the book was received. Among the players, there were some players who didn't like it. Uh, uh, certainly Julie Heldman, and her, especially her mother, Gladys Heldman, didn't like it. I guess because Julie didn't like the portrayal of herself. And Gladys, I think, I, I guess Gladys didn't think I gave her enough uh, credit for what she had done for the tour, which was a huge amount, admittedly. Oh, that's interesting. I, I mean, I, I've read about I mean, a fair amount about Julie before, but I came away from your book liking her more. I, I wouldn't have complained about that portrayal. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting. So the, the year after you uh, you followed the tour for your book, that was the first year of world team tennis, and that really that changed. The, the schedule of the season, it, cha- it changed a lot of things. And I mean, did you, did you cover world team tennis at all? I saw it once or twice back in the day, but frankly, I didn't, I didn't cover it. I don't remember too much about it. Okay. It's, it's something I'm always curious about because it just seemed so out of left field that tennis ended up with this, this new format with men and women playing together with I mean, this huge chunk in the middle of the season. It was just a, it, it was and still is kind of a, a bizarre episode in, in tennis history. It, it is. And and two years ago, during the pandemic, I watched some of the world team tennis. And it also gave a chance for players who were sort of at the end of their careers, like Venus Williams, uh, a chance for them to showcase their the skills that remained. And that's been valuable. Yeah, it's it's it seems like it's a little bit more star driven now where they'll have somebody like Venus or Andy Roddick at the end of his career turn up for a, for a few dates. Um, sure. It's still still trucking along. Do you think that that a book like yours with the sort of behind the scenes look at the tour, could that be written today with the, the entourages and players with media training and all that stuff in this very different environment? Uh- I'd be very surprised. I mean, I the the other the, the the greatest piece of luck I had was the battle of the sexes, but the second piece of luck I had was that back then the women players especially had no entourages, so I was able to embed myself in the tour very easily, and I had fabulous access that nobody gets now to the players. I mean, I was just there. 
if you did try or you were giving advice to someone who was tackling this sort of book for the 2022 or 2023 season, do you have any suggestions for how they would go about trying to get through some of those obstacles? I think they would have to be in one of the players' entourages. That's the only thing I can imagine. Or be an official of the WTA. Otherwise, I don't know how you get close to the players anymore. I, I you know, I haven't, I follow tennis, but I haven't reported on it for a long time. I just get the feeling that players limit their exposure to the press uh, and the WTA helps them do that. Yeah, that's definitely my impression as well. I mean, and, and that half answers what my, my next question was going to be is, is it, what do you think is missing from, from tennis journalism these days? It's changed so much, uh, I mean, especially with the, the advent of the internet and so many people following streaming of every match when it's happening. There's not as much desire for like a, a blow by blow recap of a match. Like there used to be in the times. Um, but what, is there anything you think that tennis journalism would benefit from these days for having more of? Gee, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the journalism is better because you have a lot of people specializing on covering tennis and there's so much more tennis to watch on television. Who would have expected an entire channel devoted on TV to tennis. I I can't imagine what else could be. I mean, aside from more rounded portraits of the players as people, rather than as just tennis players, I don't really know. Do you think that that women's tennis gets a fair shake now um, compared to men's tennis? I do. Don't you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you go hunting for for little signs of bias, you can find them. Um, But but yeah, I mean, certainly there's plenty of coverage. I mean, there's there's always this ebb and flow of whether there are bigger names or more engaging players on one tour than the other. But I don't think that's that's a sign of of bias in the coverage. It's just how things go. I also think that in the past 20 years, the presence of the Williams sisters gave women's tennis such visibility. I mean, they they did an immense amount just by being there and playing. You know, I, I think you can't overestimate how much uh, the Williams sisters meant for women's tennis. And it would be lovely to see somebody write a book about one or both of them that really delves a little deeper uh, but who knows, it's maybe impossible to penetrate the uh, entourages of the Williams sisters. Uh, and even even now, I mean, Vina, neither one of them is playing very much, but I would love to see more about them in their prime. And I don't know if, if anybody has an insight into that. It's probably uh, somebody like a coach or a manager, that blonde woman who's always been in... Um, in uh Serena's box um I, she's an agent I think uh she would have a unique perspective but other than that I don't know it, it would be great to see a, a book about them have you seen uh, Jerry Marzorati's book seeing Serena I did I did but you know he he didn't have that much access uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that that was an attempt at looking more closely at the Williams phenomenon. And I think he did a good job. It's just that he didn't have any extra access to Serena that anybody else didn't have. But I no, I think he did a wonderful job. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I really enjoyed that book as well. But yeah, like you say, the access is so hard. It, it, it would it would be it, it would be entertaining if it turned out like a uh, like a presidential cabinet where every after the the career was over, everyone wrote their books about the yeah. whole time. Like the agent wrote their book and the parents wrote their books. Uh, right. I guess some of those are already out. But yeah, I mean, I did Jerry's word for Serena's impact was consequential. He said she was the most consequential player of her era. And I thought that was perfect. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Are there things that you were you're waiting for me to ask that I haven't mentioned? Uh, well, you didn't ask about Rosie. And the truth is that although she was not the center of the book, because she was so approachable and because she was so likable, uh, I, I liked her a great deal. And so I probably wrote more about her than I originally intended to. The only thing I regret is that Chrissy and Martina weren't more, well, Chrissy Chrissy was already, you know, playing the finals at Wimbledon, but Martina hadn't started her rise yet. And those two players became so important in the next 10 years that I'm sorry I didn't have more about them in the book. It's funny to come across a couple of mentions of Martina because, of course, she just dominates women's tennis history. And you have her in there for a a paragraph as someone who's addicted to fast food. (laughs) And that's it. Yeah, I didn't get to to know her on the tour. That's all the questions I have. I really appreciate you taking the time and answering all my questions. Well, it's my pleasure. Don't often get questions about a long way, baby, but it's fun to talk about it. It has been a privilege to speak with Grace Lichtenstein, author of A Long Way Baby, Behind the Scenes in Women's Tennis. As I said at the outset, um, the book is no longer in print, but you can track it down online. You can read it on the web at Internet Archive, or you can buy used copies via somewhere like Amazon.com or ABE Books. Not too hard to find, fortunately. Thanks again to Grace for talking to me about the book. If you want to hear more of my thoughts about it and my oftentimes co-host Carl Bialik's thoughts, you can check out the previous episode of the podcast, episode 112, talking about the book as well as some specifics about Rosie Casals, because this is tied to my Tennis 128 project as I count down the 128 best players of the last century, of which Rosie was one, which led me down this path in the first place. So thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next time.